Paranormal Perception is part of the Audio Geekdom Podcast Network. Paranormal Perception is a full-bodied apparition summoned by... 22 Creations Multimedia, LLC. Taking a look at the unseen world around us. A world of shadows. Unheard whispers. I see you. Restless souls. Strange creatures. I'm watching you. We'll explore these topics and more. Not for answers. It is called the unknown for a reason. Come and find me. By the end of this episode, you'll have a new perception on the paranormal. I'm watching you. Paranormal Perception with Henry San Miguel. Welcome to a brand new episode of Paranormal Perception. I am Henry, and today we're going to talk about something a topic we've actually covered not in detail. We've, we've actually brought it up, uh, I believe the last time was earlier this year at Virginia City when John Zaffas for the second time was sitting with me. And he brought him, brought him up a, a little bit. We didn't get into detail, like I said. But today, we will. Today's guest is David Weatherly, who is an author, a researcher, an investigator into cryptozoology, supernatural, parent, basically anything we talk about in Paranormal Perceptions. David has probably done some research into it. He's got, we're going to talk today about his latest book. It's called Eerie Companions, A History of Haunted Dolls. I have a, sh- a link on the show description. You guys can get it. It's available online. And let's welcome him first to the show. David, welcome to Paranormal Perception. Hi, Henry. Thanks for having me on. Th- thanks for coming on. So b- before we get started into anything, let me, let me just throw out a very, I guess, generic question. It could turn into a big conversation, obviously, and we're going to talk about it here. But just let me start with, you know, some people are afraid of clowns, spiders, different things. But there are some people who are deathly afraid of dolls. So why are some people so afraid of, of, of dolls? <laughs> well, that there's not a short answer to that. And, uh, you know, that's something that actually a lot of people are afraid or at the very least creeped out by dolls. And it sort of gets into this concept that I I explore in the book some uh, called the uncanny Valley. Mm -hmm. And this is circulated uh, around a few times throughout history, starting in the 1900s. Uh, Psychologists have addressed it. Scientists have addressed it. And in, in simple terms, what it means is that as uh, humans, when we are interacting or even observing something that has uh, qualities that appear living, in other words, eyes, uh, some type of facial structure, so forth, uh, our brains are expecting certain responses. So, in other words, if you're interacting with another human being, you know, you're, you're having a lot of other things register other than just the speech. You know, there's the eye movements, there's the... Uh, the various body language that goes on on a subtle level and all these types of things. We can carry that further and say, you know, if we're interacting with animals, we recognize consciously it's not a human being, but we also uh, have an interaction to some degree with that animal that is logical. Now, the question becomes what happens when we're 
interacting with something that has those, quote, living features, but it doesn't really have the qualities of life that we normally uh, expect. And it, it sort of causes this strange reaction in our consciousness because uh, we're looking at a doll that has human features, uh, but it's, we know uh, logically it's not going to respond uh, you know, to uh, verbal questions or commands or so forth. But when it does to some degree, or even if we perceive that it does, then it becomes rather disturbing. Uh, we've seen a lot of this develop over time because of the evolution of dolls and how they are able to interact. You know, we we went from very simple, you know, wooden or cloth dolls in the past to dolls that were able to, uh, you know, issue a, a, a voice to some degree, you know, speak sentences whose heads were able to turn and so forth. Uh, so we really get into this this weird field. I'm trying to be short, but it is a very in-depth topic to start looking at this concept that, you know, dolls, uh, when they do behave in any way that we don't expect, and it, it, it really becomes quite disturbing. And this is this whole uncanny valley concept. It's something that I think we're going to find is more and more a part of what we're dealing with on a daily basis because, you know, scientists are rapidly developing AI. And, you know, you see these robots coming out of places like Japan that have human features. They are able to talk and respond. Uh, but we know consciously that right now that's not life as we understand it. So it becomes very unsettling at a deep level. Yeah, that's, that's exactly why I started with that question. And, and yeah, I, I knew it was uh, not a loaded question, but it, it, one that can definitely open up the conversation, which we will cover a lot here. And I was thinking, actually, I'm glad you mentioned Japan. I was thinking, I'm, I'm sure a lot of the listeners have read the stories, not only the uh, the human-like dolls, but all these brothels that have robot sex dolls in it. So apparently we are losing <laughs> yeah. our fear of dolls in that way, at least. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really strange. And again, you know, uh, where does that line get crossed where we accept, okay, something is, is an object uh, or no, something is taking on some kind of life. And, and of course, you know, when we come to dolls, that, that veers off into a whole different direction because we start talking about hauntings or possessions or, or whatever. And uh, that's a whole different level of disturbing for a lot of people. So, but anyway, you know, the short answer is that a lot of people are disturbed by dolls because of this whole concept of the uncanny valley. You know, that this perception that that should not be responding, or or that looks human that should be responding, and you know, where what exactly is happening here? And then it extends beyond dolls too, because really it encompasses anything that has those human-like features. You know, a lot of people are afraid of mannequins, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, some people even have a fear of statues that are too human-like in appearance. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you're bringing up the Uncanny Valley in the book and here on the show on Paranormal Perception, because the other podcast that I do, the Geek Speak show, that one covers more pop culture. And as you're probably well aware, David, pop, pop science fiction specifically, they've really, really covered that topic of the Uncanny Valley and a lot of a lot of uh, TV shows and movies and, and robots. It's covered that, so I'm glad you're bringing that up in the book. Because not not too many people in the paranormal community seem to be familiar with the Uncanny Valley term discuss the concept 
And then, of course, it's it circulated around a few different times. There was a Japanese scientist in the 1970s who explored it some. And, you know, it's, it's very relevant when we're talking about something like this. Uh, you know, as an investigator and a researcher, you really have words. So that's always my approach, whatever topic I'm approaching, uh, I'm looking at. Yeah, so, so let's talk about uh, connecting more to to the book Eerie Companions: A History of Haunted Dolls. Let's, let's let's start there. Let's talk about haunted dolls. Before we do, let me have you define what exactly you mean by the term haunted dolls. So when we use that term, it, it really is a, a broad uh, term that encompasses dolls that have some kind of supernatural quality, essentially. Now, we have to break that down and, and understand that there are a number of ways that any object or dolls in, in particular can become, quote, haunted. Uh, in, in basic terms, we have dolls that seem to have uh, taken on residual energy from the original owner. And this can happen, uh, for instance, you know, if a child uh, we all know that children, typically, classically, uh, they give dolls names. They give them uh, personalities. You know, they interact with them as they as if they are living beings, uh, because a child's perception is very different. So, if you think about that, and if you think about a child uh, owning a doll for years and giving it that kind of energy, uh, we could we can get kind of esoteric and say it's very possible that a a child is imbuing that doll with a portion of their energy. And if we have, we have a case where, for instance, a, a child dies at a young age or even as a teenager or something, uh, there may be experiences that the family has with that doll holding some of the residual energy from that person who loved it so much. Uh, there are even cases where people have uh, grown up and, and they've kept the dolls uh, that they loved so much as a child and still, you know, in the back of their minds, think about that child being, you know, Betsy or whatever and, and noticing some strange things because the doll has had so much energy given to it over so many years. Uh, we can go in another direction and, and look at the religious slash uh, demonology perspective of these things and say that, well, you know, some people consider dolls uh, sometimes to become possessed and one of the big reasons for that, it goes back to this idea of something in a human form again. Uh, classical demonology says that something that is in the form of a human but is not living is a perfect vessel for something unearthly to become attached, to basically to move in. And that's an interesting take. We see it not just with uh, standard, you know, Catholic viewpoints, but also other traditions and religions have that idea too. The Amish, for instance, uh, don't have dolls with faces because to them it's uh, sinful to replicate something that has a human face. And there's also a danger that something evil or sinister can move into that vessel. So we see this concept at various places around the world. And a third, a third, uh, option, if you will, that I would add in for the potential of haunted dolls is that sometimes uh, people say that the spirit of the person who owned the doll can actually possess it uh, after they have passed away. 
there's a famous doll in Japan. We were talking about Japan a moment ago called Okiku. And the story around Okiku is that uh, the young girl who received the doll was a gift from her, her older brother. Uh, she loved this doll very much, but she died. The girl died tragically at a young age. And the family believed that her spirit uh, moved into the doll, essentially. And the curious thing about this doll is that uh, purportedly the hair grows. Uh, hmm. the, the first few times it happened, the family would trim the hair, but it would, it would continue to grow. Uh, they ended up giving it to a uh, Buddhist temple where it's kept currently. But do you know, was, was it, was it human hair or just a doll's toy hair? I guess you would call it. It, it is, um, you know, I can't remember right off whether they used human hair on that one. A lot of times, a lot of dolls do actually use human hair, uh, more so in the past, obviously, uh, before the age of a lot of synthetic things. Uh, mm-hmm. But typically, uh, they would use a lot of natural fibers for dolls back in those days. And, um, you know, whichever whichever they had used for this particular doll, it continued to grow on a regular basis. The, the priest at the temple uh, took it in and essentially treated it as, oh, this is something that has a living spirit in it, so we'll care for it. Wait, when you say dolls, most listeners, they probably picture what the typical doll, like you were saying, the uh, you know dolls that, that, that a little girl would play with, even the porcelain dolls. But as you, were, as you were talking a second ago, I was thinking kids also tend to have teddy bears or some kind of stuffed animal. Now, would those count as, as dolls also, or are those something else different? Uh, they sort of can. They, they typically count more as, you know, quote toys or, or, uh, as you would say, stuffed animals. And interestingly enough, you really, you don't find that many cases of, uh, a stuffed animal, for instance, taking on those kind of characteristics. Uh, I guess it's, it maybe goes back to that idea that now we've gone one step removed from something that looks human and thinking, okay, well, it has eyes and, and, you know, uh, ears and so forth, but, uh, yet it's an animal form. So I think there's a different level of, uh, separation there, if you will. Okay. Yeah. So, so ear companions, it's one of your newer books, but when, when did you start researching haunted dolls? Is it something recent or how long ago did you start the research into haunted dolls? Oh gosh, uh, years ago. Uh, you know, my my background is pretty varied within the supernatural, paranormal realm, and it's one of those things that consistently always came around. You know, I've had a lot of cases and places I've investigated over the years where there have been uh, haunted dolls as a component. And uh, a, a few years ago, I had the idea to do a full history of a book on on haunted dolls. Uh, I ended up doing a, I I co-wrote a book with a friend of mine, Ross Allison, on haunted toys uh, that has a a section on dolls, but also covers other toys that have been haunted through the years. And um, after that, I kind of set my mind and said, okay, you know, I really need to to delve in and do a full examination of this because nobody really had done it up to this point. And I wanted to present all these different aspects, everything from the Uncanny Valley to uh, you know, dolls and their use in, in magic and ritual and all these different aspects because there really are a lot of uh, roads that converge 
so to speak, into this concept of, of haunted dolls. And it's a very popular topic right now. You know, there's there's more people than ever who collect haunted objects uh, with, with the paranormal being such a part of pop culture in recent years. Uh, a lot of attention has been put on it. And of course, along with that, we get a lot of uh, <laughs> reportedly haunted dolls that end up for sale on on eBay and other auction sites that probably, uh, you know, have no activity at all. Yeah. Yeah. They're just taking advantage of, uh, the, uh, the haunted doll craze. will I'll call it. Sure. And, and when it comes to it, I guess, you know, how do you really prove it? <laughs> uh, unless you, you know, unless you have a personal experience and witness something with the doll, uh, you know, we can almost, almost say any item is, is haunted. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I guess you can go as as the kids say today. If it's not on video, it didn't happen. I guess that's one way right. to prove it. Uh, so, yeah, no when, yeah, when you started doing the, the when you started doing the research on the history of haunted dolls, how far back did that history start? Uh, did you discover? Well, I guess it depends on which branch you're looking at. Of course, you know, dolls have been used in in magic and ritual far, far back in history. And if we examine it from that direction, we would really say, you know, thousands of years. If we're talking about, quote, haunted dolls as we understand it currently, uh, then, you know, really you're going to go back to, uh, you know, some of the early haunted dolls that were out there. Uh, of course, everybody knows about Annabelle mm -hmm. these days. Uh, because the popularity in the movies and so forth. Uh, but then we've got the uh, grandfather of haunted dolls, Robert the doll who's in Key West, Florida. And, and that's just a, an amazing story because it wraps in, you know, a haunted object and some folklore and some different tales and, and everything else. And he really is, uh, I, I think the sort of the one that started it all in terms of modern haunted dolls. He was the inspiration incidentally for Chucky, by a lot of accounts and uh, just so many strange stories surrounding him. And he, even up to today, he's in a museum in East Martello currently. And there are always new stories about Robert. Yeah. We talked about Robert here also. And, and Annabelle, I mentioned when John Zaffis came on, obviously he talked about the Annabelle doll. Have you either during research for this book or, or on your own, have you ever had a chance to see the real Annabelle or Robert or any of the uh, haunted dolls? I've seen most of them actually. Uh, there's there's a couple of the more well known ones um, that I have not seen. One of them is, is Letta, who is in Australia, and oh uh, gosh, I, I don't know right off what else I have. I, but yeah, I've, I've seen. I saw Annabelle years ago. Uh, I've seen Robert a couple of times in QS. Uh, most of the, most of the well-known, I just saw Mandy, the haunted doll about a year ago. That was one of the ones I hadn't seen. That one's up in British Columbia. Mm. And uh, again, a weird story around that one. She's at a museum also, but most of them I have seen personally. Yes. Okay. So, so I know you've had, you've done a ton of research on dolls on everything really. So in, in the research, if at all, was there anything new that you learned about haunted dolls that you didn't know before? I, mm, you know, most of this is just kind of accumulated uh, knowledge over the years. So I, I don't know if there was anything 
recent that really jumped out at me when I when I wrote the book. Um, not not that I think of right off the top of my head. It was fascinating actually writing the book and and sort of uh, putting it all down on paper and realizing you know how many different aspects of this there are. I hadn't delved too much into how much haunted dolls were used in entertainment. And that's one of the things I did with this book. I put a whole section in the background, uh, in, in the back of the book to get background on how long uh, dolls have been used as, uh, you know, creepy elements in films. And we know about the common ones, you know, like the Chucky series and, right. and the more recent Annabelle films. Uh, but really that's something that goes back pretty far too. People have long had this concept of dolls being, you know, uh, having a, a very unsettling, creepy quality. So there's a, a section in the back of the book that goes into a, a brief history of some of the use of creepy dolls in films, and that was pretty fascinating. Yeah, I mean, when you, when you said that the first the first doll, I mean, mannequin, but I guess it's a doll, is Charlie McCarthy is the one I thought of. You couldn't see him, you heard him, but, you know, there were pictures out there. So I would say that maybe is an earlier one. Yeah, that's that's one of the early ones. Uh, there's you go far enough back. There's actually a film from 1929 that's called The Great Gabo, and it centers around a ventriloquist. Uh, so that that has that creepy element. Of course, if you're old enough, you might remember a film from the late 70s called Magic with Anthony Hopkins and, and that made incredible use uh, psychologically of a ventriloquist dummy. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's all about a ventriloquist uh, who essentially goes mad. He thinks he's being controlled or, or uh, you know, dictated to by his uh, ventriloquist doll. And that's, that's a pretty, <laughs> that's a pretty crazy film. Uh, but you look at it and, you know, I sort of, I, I gave a, a basic outline in the book of some of the highlights of films, but gosh, yeah, starting in 1929 and then going all the way up through the, the 40s, the, you know, the, the 60s and 70s, there were a whole string of movies that utilized dolls. And of course it was uh, the late 80s when we really got into a lot of, a lot of use of dolls and puppets and so forth. We had the, the child's play series started with Chucky. We had uh, the puppet master series started uh, using uh, puppets. So it just sort of took off from there in the height of, of those kind of B grade horror films. And, you know, filmmakers were, were uh, sharp enough to say, okay, well, a lot of people are creeped out by dolls. Let's see if we can make it uh, even worse. <laughs> they, they definitely did. Yeah, and if it seems like we're not getting the detail, well, we're not on purpose because we do want you guys to go read it. It's called Eerie Companions, A History of Haunted Dolls. Again, I have a link on the show description. You guys can get it on there. Now, David, you mentioned it a, a, a few minutes ago, but what role, if any, that does religion play with, with haunted dolls? Fairly significant in some cases. You know, we have, again, going back to this concept that a doll can be possessed, and frequently it's believed that something demonic or evil has moved into the doll in order to, to try to affect the household or, you know, take control of the child or the family and so forth. So, you know, I think that the, the perception of 
the paranormal is often dictated by a religious view, whether often whether people consciously realize it or not. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't consider themselves necessarily religious, but if they were raised as a, a Catholic or a Christian or and subconsciously will dictate how the person responds to something. So, you know, I've been on cases where the person, you know, the family will say, no, we're not religious, you know, we don't go to church, uh, but they will still be using, quote, religious language because they're telling me that they think something is is. Uh, you know, satanic or came from the devil and so forth. And those honestly are, are religious views. You know, we wouldn't find, uh, for instance, a, a, a Buddhist or a Taoist saying, oh, it's Satan. Uh, yeah. And, you know, people, uh, as I said, they just don't consciously realize that the imprint of those early religious ideas are there. And when, when they're confronted with something that is unknown, that's what they default back to, uh, naturally. So we have these cases where, you know, suddenly there's a doll that is doing things that a doll shouldn't do. You know, it's appearing in different places in the house or it's, uh, you know, it's making sounds it shouldn't make or it's moving on its own. Uh, then a lot of times people will default back to that religious view and say, well, it's got to be something satanic. You know, the, the devil was trying to use this thing. So I, I think that in all branches of the paranormal when we're dealing with these cases we have to consider religion has a big factor yeah absolutely so and, and again i've been here for a long long time as you guys will discover when you read eerie companions a history of haunted dolls again i have a link on the show description so you guys can go and check it out to get a read uh, it's a great read i'm sure you guys will enjoy it now david let's talk a little bit about you how what is what is it or who was it what sparked your interest in the supernatural cryptozoology all the stuff we, we i cover here on panel perception what started your interest in that gosh I, I became interested when i was a kid i was fascinated by uh, ghost stories and, and just strange things and in the 70s uh i started discovering things um, you know books by hans holzer and Eric von Donick and some of the people who were writing back then, it wasn't anywhere near the amount of material out there as there is now. And uh, I discovered very early on uh, through a neighbor and discovered Fate magazine, uh, which, you know, Fate started in the 1940s, a little digest size magazine and, and covered the whole spectrum of the strange, if you will, everything from Sasquatch to psychic phenomena to, you know, UFOs, ghosts, mysteries, so forth. And I was just so intrigued and so fascinated that that's, you know, that was the, those were big influences on me. And I started researching and, and investigating. Uh, when I was a teenager, I started investigating haunted locations and I've never looked back since then. Yes, I mean, as you mentioned, and I remember also when I was younger, like like you said, there there wasn't a lot of material out there. There there were some, but not as much as there there is today. So, how did you how did you find the research to to become a researcher? So, where where and how did where did you go to find all the research besides what you just mentioned? Oh, it was tough in the old days. I mean, uh, I can remember, you know, when I discovered Fate Magazine, like I said in the in the seventies. Uh, I, I had a neighbor. This is kind of funny because I grew up in a rural area of North Carolina, and you know the paranormal was not uh, a popular thing back then. I, I always tell the joke that back in the 
the early days when I started doing this stuff, if I went to a party and told people what I did, I had a nice quiet evening alone <laughs> because no, no, but you know, everybody's like, this guy's asking about ghosts and Bigfoot, you know, stay away from him. And now it's the polar opposite. You know, I can go to a party and tell people what I do or, or somebody recognizes me and, and there's a queue out the door because yeah. everybody's got a story. And that's, that's really a cool switch, you know, but uh, in the early days, gosh, you know, uh, Fate Magazine and this neighbor gave me this huge crate of these things, and I can remember just devouring everything that was in there, and, and back in those days, they had tons of classifieds for newsletters and, and books and stuff, and I would I would send off for everything, you know, I was interested in all of it, and uh, as the years developed, of course, in the, the later 70s, we got In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy, yeah. which was pretty eye-opening, and then as the 80s, uh, came along, things started to open up a little bit more. And, uh, by the time I was, uh, in my late teens, early twenties, I was able to travel a lot more and I was, uh, you know, connecting with more people and, and, uh, constantly, constantly prowling used bookstores for material that had been published. Uh, and that's how you had to do it back in the old day. There, there was no internet, there was no Google, you know, you really had to read and research and, and get out there in the field and discover things on your own. And uh, that's what I always, that's what I still do. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, that's my approach. Yeah, I mean, and like, like you mentioned, I, I've noticed, I would say in the last maybe six, seven years, maybe a little bit more, but I'm sure you've seen that also. Like, like you said, there's more of, uh, I use the word acceptance, more of an acceptance of the paranormal or, or when you when people start sharing Hey, I you know my house was haunted, or I heard this, I saw this, I think I saw this. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think there is more of an acceptance today of the paranormal, the supernatural, than there was back then? I almost hate to say this, but uh, a good portion of the credit goes to television. Mm. You know the the waves of paranormal themed shows that we had uh, come on over the last uh, what ten years or so have made it more. Um, acceptable, you know, it's, it's more common. Now you can turn on the television any given night of the week and see a show about ghosts or Bigfoot or something. And I think that was part of what happened. Uh, another thing is that, you know, the interest I believe was there pretty much, you know, already. It's just that people weren't as willing to be open with it. I, I, I know that, in my career, you know, I would often go to areas I would really have to, uh, you know, take a journalistic approach and become connected with people and make some connections in, in the community and, you know, find ways to get people to open up and talk about these things. Uh, any given community would have its set of ghost stories and local legends and so forth. It's just a matter of getting people comfortable enough to open up. Uh, so that they knew they weren't going to be laughed at or called, you know, superstitious or, or stupid or anything like that. Uh, so it, it's easier now just because so many people are doing this kind of the, the snowball down the hill effect. You know, the more people that talk about it, the easier it is for other people to say, Oh yeah, well I, I saw the ghost of my you know grandmother or I saw strange lights in the sky. And that is, is one of the, one of the positive things we've had, come out of it being much more acceptable and, and much more part of pop culture. I, I think so, too. I think it was the the, uh, the paranormal shows, the TV shows that, that did that. But another thing, I was, and now we always bemoan, especially the older we are, bemoan social media and it's the downfall of civilization. But one good thing I will say, I think... <laughs> 
the fact that it opened up, uh, it made our community literally global, worldwide, and, and all of a sudden we're hearing, we're, we're we're hearing, we're reading stories about people all over the world experiencing things that we experienced. And we heard voices, we saw this or this happen. So I think that's also made it more more acceptable, as I say. It, it absolutely has. You know, the thing is, both with social media, the internet, and with uh, the paranormal television shows, they're they're a two-edged sword, really, because, um, for instance, anybody can post something online. And at the same time, you know, how do you chase that down and talk to the person and, and investigate the site? Sometimes you can't. Uh, sometimes you just have to say, okay, well, maybe this anonymous poster is telling the truth or maybe not. Uh, you know, the same thing with the television shows. You have to, to weigh the entertainment factor. And a lot of people, a lot of modern researchers even don't realize that. I, I, I cringe when I see people in the field who, uh, it's not about their inspiration, but more about their, that's not a solid core for how you should be approaching these things. Yeah. Yeah. Enjoy the shows. You know, I have friends on all the shows, you know, yeah. Enjoy them, watch them, but understand that there's an entertainment factor because, you know, whether those investigations are completely valid, we honestly don't know. We weren't there. We don't know what post-production did or editing or anything else. Right. So, uh, you know, get get some concepts and, and learn the history of this field, whether it's ghosts or UFOs or Sasquatch, whatever it is you're interested in, uh, you know, understand that these are things that people have been investigating and pursuing for many, many years, way, way back in history. And, uh, you know, some of these modern groups, they don't know who uh, Hans Holzer even is or, or Harry Price or, you know, Conan Doyle or, or some of the people who investigated ghosts early on. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. It is a, a double-edged sword because, I mean, having produced some of these paranormal shows myself, I I, I, I I don't know if I don't know the word what the word is. I I I I'm proud of them, but at the same time, there's a it's a little bit of a, well, I don't I don't know if it was a good thing or not because <laughs> because because you're no right. because you're right that that and a, a lot this audience the paranormal perception audience we've done um, paranormal expos conventions and a lot of them are capped off by doing investigations and, and it's fun you know we're a group but a lot of times is I'll describe it as boring because nothing's happening because i've always said spirits they don't they don't perform on command just like what you see on tv uh if you're here let the make the rem pod go off yeah there's a little bit of you know this trickery that goes on in uh, post-production it doesn't always happen sometimes you have to be there for a week and a tv show you're not gonna as an audience you're not gonna sit there for a whole week waiting for something to happen so you need something to happen so so yeah you're right david there's the, it, it's interesting to see how they're done, but no, I hope they know, the audience knows, that's not exactly how it, there's not something happening every single second on an, on, uh, an investigation. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I mean, that, that's probably a whole other show to discuss the, the reality of reality television. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we, we also have other factors to consider. And a lot of, uh, there's a portion of people on these shows who, who don't, have a background in the paranormal, you know, who uh, it, it's bothersome, but there are, you know, some of these people who are just actors yeah. uh, who come into the field because, you know, that's, that's the role that's available is, you know, the role of a paranormal investigator or whatever. Uh, but then, you know, we, we've had some genuine people on, you mentioned John Zaffis earlier, he's a good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, John had a long, long time in the field prior to being on a television show. And I, I hope that we start to see 
more of that, more of people with a, a genuine, really in-depth background uh, doing some of these shows so that they can demonstrate, now this is really how it's done. Yeah, John, John's Zaffis, he's actually become a good friend of mine since last year when we first started, kicked off Panel on Perception. He's one of the first guests on the show. We did it live, actually, at one of, the, at one of these uh, paranormal events. And, you know, I always joke with him, and, and you know, he's a, he's a great guy. He, he, uh, his show, The Haunted Collector, uh, we always joke around yeah. how <laughs> everything, when, when he sees, uh, you know, a, a Lamborghini or something, oh, I think it's haunted. It has to go to my collection. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he always gets a kick when I tell him things like that. But like I said, you know, he's, he's a great guy, the honest one. You know that also. So, so for, yeah. for you, David, um, tell him the website, any appearances or anything you have going on, social media, where they can follow everything that you have coming up. Definitely check out eerielights.com. That is E-E-R-I-E lights.com. And uh, that's that's a new website I launched this past spring, and uh, it stays uh, pretty frequently updated. So everything will be listed on there. There's uh, links to the books. There's articles that I post, uh, appearances, and everything else. Uh, really, October is always a pretty busy month. I'm doing mostly private events and lectures uh, this month, but already a lot of events lining up for next year uh, that you'll be able to catch me at at various locations uh, around the country and even a couple of international ones as, as usual. So eerielights.com, that's the place to check me out. There's also an Eerie Lights Facebook page where you can get uh, different news stories and, and so forth that get posted. And there is an Eerie Lights Instagram. Please follow that also. Okay, and and I'll link it up to on the show description. You guys can just click on the names, and it'll take you right there. So let me let me end on a, on a fun one, actually, since we are a week, a little over a week away from Halloween. How does I mean we for for you for me who talks about this on a, on a weekly basis? This is year long, but like you said, tis the season. It's October coming up to Halloween. How does how does someone who researches the paranormal on on a, on a daily hourly basis? How do you celebrate Halloween when we when we celebrate the scary? <laughs> uh, I'm usually somewhere different every year and you know I, I kind of uh, I try to grab some time to enjoy it I'm often doing investigations uh, if it's you know some kind of paid event or something like that uh, but I, I always try to be in a place that really uh, gets into the gets into the season so to speak yeah. uh, you know so there's a lot of places around the country that you can really enjoy Halloween there's uh, a couple of years ago, it was in Ireland for Halloween. That was pretty incredible because there's a massive celebration out in the country. Uh, you know, I, I just try to do something different every year and really enjoy it because this is, in some ways, a celebration of, of stuff I do every day. So it's uh, it's always a good time. Yeah, I was almost expecting you to say, well, that's the one day when I actually take a day off from, from all, the, uh, all the ghosts. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I, I love what I do. So, uh, you know, I don't really feel like I need to take a day off or downtime or anything. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I go anywhere, even if it's on quote vacation, it's usually to someplace that, uh, you know, I, I can find something strange anywhere I go. So, yeah, which is the great, uh, again, David, uh, I, have, I have links for everything, websites, everything that, for you guys to follow. Just click on David's name on the show description. It'll take you right there. David, thank you so much for coming on. Really enjoyed the book. And, and you're right. You, you do have to come back. I, that is another show, the reality behind the reality shows. That would be an interesting <laughs> one to do. So you're welcome back on uh, Paranormal Perception whenever you get you have the time. Sounds great, huh, Henry. Thanks a lot, David. Follow Paranormal Perception on Twitter 
at Show and on Instagram at Paranormal Perception. And watch our videos on Vimeo.com slash Paranormal Perception. Paranormal Perception. Perception was conjured by the Audio Wizards at 22 Creations Multimedia, LLC. Paranormal Perception is part of the Audio Geekdom Podcast Network. You can find even more podcasts like this on theaudiogeekdom.com.